today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Over the past decade, uh, the uh, capital of Tel Aviv has established itself as an, uh, an exponent of progressive smart city policy, as well as a hub for smart city investment and entrepreneurship. Barcelona's smart city progress itself has become something of a lucrative export product with well-attended spinoffs, trade shows in Latin America, Asia, and the Middle East. Could we see this coming here? To talk more about all of this, Jennifer Kiesmat is with us, founder of the Kiesmat Group and former uh, chief city planner with the City of Toronto and with us now. Jennifer, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Hello, Scott. Obviously, I'm sure well before a pandemic, you were talking about what smart cities would look like, what the future of cities would look like uh, 10 years from now, 15, 20 years from now, what have you. But how has a pandemic changed that picture for you? Well, the pandemic has changed it in that I would only say it's accelerated many of the trends and understanding that we had before the pandemic. So if we kind of strip things down to their very basic parts, what do we need in cities? Well, we need housing that people can afford and we need housing, we need housing close to jobs and people have to be able to get to those jobs. And we also need green space. We need places where children can play, but we also need places where we can walk our dogs, where we can be rejuvenated. In some ways, those are some of the fundamental building blocks of cities. And those things, um, have been a little bit reframed in the context of the pandemic. We thought back in March when we really didn't know what was happening. I watched what was happening in the housing market very carefully because we didn't know, oh, wait a minute, is this going to result in housing becoming more affordable? Is there going to be, you know, we'll have less international travel, we'll have less demand on those Airbnb issues that have been pulled off of the market. And kind of an amazing thing happened, which is as a result of a lot of different factors, including really low interest rates and the amount of money that the government has pumped into the economy at the federal level, which is we've seen a run on housing. We've actually seen the housing market get hotter than it's ever been. And an outcome of that, the flip side of that, has been that the demand for housing and affordable housing, we've also seen really accelerate. So we can talk about things like the, you know, digital um, interventions in our cities and how important they are from a smart city's perspective. But at the end of the day, when you look at the bedrock of what makes a city work or not work, can the essential workers, the key people who feed us, who take care of us when we're sick, um, who uh, serve us food, can they afford to live close to where they work? And can they get to and from work safely? And that's something that, you know, the spotlight has been shone on in the course of the pandemic. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, 20 years ago, it was all about stopping urban sprawl. Uh, although Canada is a vast country with 38 million people in it, um, you know, let's let's uh, scale the the sprawl back. Let's build up instead of out. Um, and and we've seen more intensified uh, uh, condo development and that sort of thing along the lakefront from you know virtually uh, throughout the Golden Horseshoe. Um, and as you mentioned, we have seen uh, competitive prices in the housing market as people try to get out. But I, from what I understand and have read, that has lowered the price of those small condo units in major cities. Is that accurate? Well, I would say there's there's definitely been a little bit of a lull. But as of the, 
the last week of December, we saw a, a, a big uptick again. Um, in So it's something that's almost changing week to week right now. One of the big drivers behind um, smaller condo living in the downtown, where there are a, a variety of different drivers, but one has been immigration. And, well, what happened in the past six months, immigration has ground to a halt. But we've been told by the Canadian government that they're going to significantly increase immigration targets in 2021 and 2022 when the pandemic is over. So we should expect to see that come roaring, roaring back. We also don't have foreign students. In a city like Toronto, uh, there's thousands and thousands of students um, living in condos because there are multiple universities and colleges. And then we've also seen on top of that, Airbnb was shut down. And Airbnb, uh, for better or worse, is a component of the condo market in the downtown core. Well over 10,000 units um, is the data that we currently have. So those are all kind of pandemic conditions, things that you would expect to see. There's a really strong logic and rationale for why there's less demand. But there's no reason why that won't kind of flip right back. You know, one of the examples I keep thinking of is when, when 9-11 happened. Uh, in New York City, there was this idea that everyone was going to stop flying, right? Well, that, of course, didn't happen. People got back on planes and people are fly more than they ever have in the intervening years. There's no reason to believe that the pandemic condition, which, let's face it, has made urban living uh, less appealing. You know, you live in the downtown, so you can go to a Blue Jays game or a Raptors game. You can walk yeah. to those games after work. You can meet your colleagues for a drink in a restaurant. You can go to the theater. All those things have been shut down. So the appeal of urban living, all the things that we like to do as social creatures, have been totally put on hold. But there's no reason to believe that that appeal um, and the desirability of that from a sustainability perspective, you know, living in an urban environment where you don't, you don't have to own a car. You just don't have to own a car. You can walk and cycle everywhere. We know that appeal will return once we get out of this mess we're in, once we're all vaccinated and uh, we move into post-pandemic times. That being said, we've heard that pandemic life is a way of the future, that this will not be the last one. So do you think this could have long-lasting effects on what people's choice is for where they want to live? Well, look, I'm not an expert in pandemics, um, but I am in city building and city design. And we've actually seen the trends, the things that we like about urban living that we can deliver when we get our city building right. And this is really critical because we don't always get our city building right. But many of those trends actually accelerated during the pandemic. So I'll give you a specific example. Cycling. You cannot buy a bike. Uh, in yeah. North America, whether it's a road bike or a child's bike. Mm -hmm. And when we design our most urban places right, you know, I, I actually grew up in Hamilton. I grew up on the Hamilton Mountain, mm -hmm. and I cycled everywhere. But when I moved to Toronto, I cycled to work. And I was something that I think is inconceivable for my parents, where it is inconceivable for them today. But in Toronto, because of the mix of uses and the proximity of uses, the idea of cycling to work in a very urban environment is a it's a real transportation choice. And we see that in, in great cities like Paris and London that have, during the pandemic, they've accelerated building their cycling infrastructure because, well, first of all, biking to work is a great quality of life, um, but it's also great for your health. It's great for the environment. Um, and it's like 
you know, very, very inexpensive to ride your bike to work instead of having to own a car and pay for parking. So that's an example of a very, very urban trend that is about an urban way of life and living in a community in an urban way that has exploded during the pandemic. And there's no reason to think that that's not a part of the future because so many cities are transforming to become cycling cities as we speak right now. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. What has exploded during the pandemic is the ability for one to stay at home and work from home. Uh, we saw a reduction in in traffic and and consumption through the early days of the pandemic when there was an actual uh, shutdown. You know, many have said that, uh, you know, if we want to reduce these sorts of things, if we want to reduce congestion rather than, you know, changing, uh, forcing people to change lifestyle, taxation, that sort of thing, it's to use technology. So how will this technology, those of us that, whether it's a bicycle or a car, they're just staying at home now. Well, I think I see this as a great thing. I really do. We've basically gone through a digital transformation that was happening slowly in terms of mm-hmm. working working remotely. Instead of that transformation happily happening slowly, it's been accelerated. And I think this is this is a great thing, mostly because of the reason that you just outlined, which is it allows uh, it allows for the opportunity of not having a commute or having a shorter commute or commuting less frequently, maybe working part of the time at the office and part of the time at home. We're all set up. Many people are set up to work from home. But once we open up restaurants again, theaters mm-hmm. again, you know, when when there's a Blue Jays go, game going on, there's 40,000 40, people going into downtown uh, Toronto every day, and our transit system is going to be absolutely jam-packed when that's happening. And I, I see it as a good thing because we were – we're hitting a bit of a tipping point, quite frankly, yeah. where the congestion of commuting was both an environmental problem, but it was demanding really, really expensive infrastructure because everyone was moving around at the same time. And when we design our neighborhoods right, when we get our neighborhoods with a mix of uses, the opportunity emerges to really move less and commute less. And I see the option of being able to mix up the workday and to work more from home as being a, few, a part of that future, that's, a, that's actually a really good thing and a good thing for cities. It means cleaner air. It means, uh, it means less time kind of wasted sitting in, sitting in traffic. And it means safer streets for people who are walking and cycling. So I actually think that is extremely compatible with moving our cities into a future where there isn't this chaotic frenzy around parking and driving. Mm, yeah. But instead, there's a lot more choice for how people work. And it seems to me, it seems to me, Jennifer, there's more emphasis put on the environment and electrifying uh, vehicles and such. But that doesn't solve the problem you're talking about with congestion. I, I mean, it's better for the environment if we're all sitting in traffic for an hour and a half in an electric vehicle. Of course it does. But it still doesn't solve the time or the congestion or the time lost during the commute. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because I've often said that a long commute is a long commute, whether you're burning gas, whether it's electric, or whether you're driving or you're sitting in the back of a cab. It doesn't, like, an autonomous vehicle is no different than being in a cab or something where you're not driving. But if you're still spending 
which the average commute in Canada, if you can imagine, is a crazy 45 minutes each way. That's crazy amounts of time. And I think that's one of the weird things of the pandemic is that a lot of people suddenly went, oh, this is what my life's like when I'm not rushing my kids out the door, rushing myself out the door, hunting for a parking spot, spending a ton of money on driving. This is, and I, and I think having been exposed to that opportunity really reinforces the importance of making our existing suburbs, because we are a suburban nation, and 75% of our growth has been in suburban sprawl over the course of the past decade. But it opens up that opportunity to really think about how we're going to adapt those suburbs so that we can do more within walking distance of home, so that there's more density uh, there's there's more shops and coffee shops and corner stores and places for people to meet in existing neighborhoods so that we don't have to hop in the car to do everything. We've just got more choice. So uh, give us a capsulated version. What will a future city look like 20 years from now? Well, the first thing I'll say, which is the most important thing, is that there's no given for the future. We have a series of choices to make, and they're mostly policy choices. If, for example, we could say, oh, you know, COVID was terrible for crowded places, so we're going to underinvest in transit. And that would be disastrous for our future mm-hmm. cities. And it's important to note that there's no relationship between density and the spread of COVID. The densest cities in the world also happen to be the ones that did the best job of t- at containing it in Asia. So the the and also cities where people never stopped using really really um, packed public transit systems also did the best job of containing. Um, and it's important to note our outbreak in Ontario started in Bob Cajun, which is hardly a beacon of density. It's a little tiny small mm. resort town, and the outbreak happened in a long term care home. So that relationship between you said in your opening about people living stacked on top of each other, elevators. There's no relationship to density, but there is a relationship between crowding and outbreaks. So in a long-term care home, you can be in a very low-density town like Bob Cajun, right. but not have, but you could have crowding within that long-term care home. Right. Or you mm-hmm. can have a long-term care home right in downtown Toronto, and there's many of them that haven't had an outbreak. Um, so that density relationship is something we've got to get that off the table. It's a myth, and it could screw up the way we think about the future if we keep that at the fore of our minds. So what does this 20-year future look like? Well, if we get our policymaking right, we'll use land differently. And we have to be thinking about a series of objectives all connected one to the other. So health is right at the very forefront and making sure we've got great accessible public spaces. Um, And, you know, many of the densest cities in the world also have the best public spaces, the best places for gathering. Uh, in the world. So that connection between creating great public spaces with amenities for children, for families, where you can do a whole variety of things is absolutely really critical. Continuing to build out great transit networks, not just bus lines and not just lines, but networks so that you can get from anywhere to anywhere. You know, that's, I think, I think, Jennifer, you've hit the thing, and we got to run here, but I I think you've hit the nail on the head with that is that, you know, we've got to somehow make it, make, uh, create the ability for people to travel to these suburban communities without having to get into the car. We've talked about high speed rail in Ontario for like 40 years, yet we never seem to get there. Same thing with even, you know, it's great to have these cities that are, you know, just outside the, the GTHA, but if we could get to them more quickly and more efficiently, 
differently, then obviously uh, that would solve the problem. A fascinating discussion. Jennifer will pick it up again. Jennifer Keysmat has been with us, founder of the Keysmat Group and former chief planner for the City of Toronto. Fascinating stuff, Jennifer. Thanks for the time. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.